This is the Kineo Equipping Podcast. Okay, well, it's nine. We'll get started. It's not nine. It's eight, so we'll get started. So we're done at nine. I have a couple things uh, that I just wanted to share, take the opportunity to share with you tonight. A couple resources. Uh, I, th- I know a while back we did uh, the issues in Hebrews, and I shared Strong's Concordance. And, and it's just a resource I use, and I think a lot of people in the room hadn't used it before or, or been familiar with it. So just a couple other things that, that I find really accessible and useful. Um, the first is an old resource, and it's called the Treasury of Scripture Knowledge, who has utilized the treasury. So it's, it's just cross-references, okay? But it's like 300,000 or more of them. And the idea, when it was conceived, is that you would use Scripture to interpret Scripture. So that's something you've probably heard and utilized, and so it's just a, a means by which doing that. But it's not like a text search, like, okay, I have this word, where is it everywhere else in the Bible? Because sometimes that doesn't yield helpful results. Sometimes that word is being used differently, and the, the, um, it's not helping you interpret the text that you're in. And so these 300,000-plus references um, have actually been scrutinized, each one of them. And so someone has gone through the process of thinking through whether that applies or not. And so it's just a really big study Bible. You know, you got the either in the middle or the margin uh, cross-references. It's just a really big one. So Treasury Scripture Knowledge is kind of like an open source document. You can find it everywhere for free. But there are versions that are like uh, engineered with hyperlinks and stuff like that. that are, or you could just hover over a reference and it, it reads it for you and things like that. But the, the way that I like to use it is a little bit different. And that is that it also has headings. They're like little tweets of sections. So it's like a shorter statement of what this section says. It's not, a, it's not an outline. It's an, it's a, you read through it, uh, and uh, it just gives the idea of the section. So anyway, not to go on too long, but here are, for instance, the writing prophets, all 17 books, uh, and it's just like candy, and I can look. If I forget where, where was that, it's easy to kind of find where that concept was introduced or... or Stated. So, anyway, if you want to look at this later, it's kind of neat. Here's the other resource. It's a new resource. We've talked about this at Candeo before on uh, the video versions of the Bible Project. And so here is what my wife got me for Christmas. And it's printed. So you can get this. And it's not that, it doesn't cost that much. It also works great as a lap desk. <laughs> If you want to study in the living room where your kids are playing, you can do that instead of being sequestered off on your own. So I want to read, uh, if you have a Bible, you can turn here as well. I want to read Acts 8. Um, And we'll start. I'll read this whole section, starting in verse 26, Acts 8, 26. 
Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go towards the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot. And he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah, the prophet, and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. That's really what we're aiming at. So we want to understand the prophets, particularly the writing prophets, so that we can ourselves, starting from that scripture, um, be, uh, come to know more about Jesus and that we can guide other people there as well. So let's pray as we begin. Lord, your, guide, or your word is our guide. We want to uh, just put all of our confidence in that and in the Holy Spirit that you would teach us um, these words, that they would make a difference in our lives, that we would come to know them better, their meaning, and also become more familiar with them so that we can uh, treasure them and, uh, and speak the truth to one another and to the world. We just pray that you would help us take a step towards that goal tonight. In Christ's name, amen. So as I was thinking about what to do tonight, uh, this, we're, we're dealing with 17 books, and um, you know, I, I first kind of started looking at each of them and thinking about if we're doing an introduction, the hidden meaning of the story of God, an introduction or a survey of, of the Bible, uh, if we're doing that survey, an introductory level to all these books, I thought maybe look at each one and see what they say, but I, I really turned a corner from there. I think what we'll do is interact with some concepts and themes that uh, are applicable to all of them, helps us read them uh, rightly, and um, you probably won't walk away tonight knowing a whole lot about Zephaniah in particular, okay? So get that out of the way in the first place. But you'll probably know a little bit better how to read Zephaniah. That's the idea. So to begin, I just thought some background uh, stuff would be good. This is just kind of helps us get through the door and start to understand some of these concepts. This is real general. So this is just definitions that we're starting with. Um, in particular, as we look at the prophetic books, we want to know what a prophet is. So that's a good place to start. Uh, just quickly here, uh, I'm, and I'm, I'm giving you my notes. So this, I, you have all of my notes in front of you. And so I might skip over some things, but you still have it there, and you can ask questions about it. Um, three words in the Old Testament, Hebrew words, that mean prophet, as we know it to mean, 
uh, are used to refer to prophets, okay, um, but not always translated as prophets. So the first two you'll see, the first two bullets there under the three Hebrew words, uh, Jose, that's my best attempt at pronouncing it, and Roe, uh, usually you'll see translated as seer, okay? And you can read through these notes, but the idea there really is that it's this aspect of being able to see something that other people don't see, okay? Uh, you could think of it, like I say there in bullet two, as a sixth sense. Um, maybe that's helpful. Those two individually occur about 20 times in the Old Testament. So they make up significant amount, but not the majority. And then there's that third word, nabi. So that's over 300 times. And that's the one we'll usually see. It says prophet, okay? There's a difference, though, in, in their meaning, and it would, you can read, I make a little comment there about etymology. So etymology, as I understand it, is not the same thing as entomology, by the way. Don't get the two confused. All right. I, I thought that was funny the first time I realized I was using the wrong one. I think it's about bugs or diseases, one of the two. But uh, etymology is how a word use developed, and so what, what originally it meant. So just know this, like I do include what that um, literally means to bubble up, so to speak. But as you're dealing with helps like, uh, like Strong's Concordance, you want to put more weight in context and less weight in etymology. So sometimes you can misinterpret scripture based solely on etymology and not be sensitive. We have words like that. Uh, I, I did this earlier. I can't think of a word now, but um, you might say fine, right? It's fine. And that has an etymological origin, but we don't really think about that origin today when we say fine. We use it in a lot of different contexts. It's more important how we're using it. So use and context are more important. But anyway, to bubble up does, though, have some significance here. So the first two words have something to do with seeing. So this is like how they received the revelation that they're communicating. But the third word there, when you see that, it does mean more about how it's communicated, okay, or the ability to communicate it. So that's the difference in those words. This is a really interesting passage. You can turn there if you want. I'm going to read 1 Samuel 9.9. And the interesting thing here is, just like the treasury of Scripture knowledge, the Bible is helping us understand the Bible. And uh, 1 Samuel 9, verse 9 says, so we just looked at th these three words, seer and prophet. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he said, come, let us go see the seer. For today's prophet was formerly called a seer. So there's kind of development and use. Okay? Interesting to me. And uh, gets, helps you get some bearings on uh, those words in the Bible. By the way, the Greek word is prophetes, and it's transliterated, so we just kind of basically say the Greek word when we say prophet, okay? And uh, that does have the meaning of one who speaks for God. You can see that in the notes. You will see, though, at least one other uh, kind of reference to prophet, and that is man of God. There's a really interesting passage that maybe we'll look at later, 1 Kings 13, and uh, the prophet there is called a man of God, okay? It can be used of other religious leaders as well, but uh, particularly in that passage, it's a prophet who receives a word from God 
And uh, we're going to deal with that a little bit later with the definition of false prophet. So next page, page two, the writing prophet. So what does that mean? There were prophets uh, long before there were writing prophets. So writing prophets, um, there's a timeline here a little bit later. starts around the 8th century B.C. And, uh, but prophets existed and are attested to in the Bible. Um, Abraham was a prophet. Moses was a prophet. So there, there are prophets and, of course, Elijah and Elisha, prophets. But they didn't write books. So writing prophets, this includes the four major prophets, um, uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, four major prophets, and, and then 12 minor prophets. They're, not that their message was less important, but they just didn't write as much, okay? So major and minor, those are the differences. Uh, they do, prophets appear in some of the historical books, by the way. So you, there's some uh, cross-references there you can look at in the historical books. So that's kind of a definition of prophet. Um, that's how you'll see it in the Bible. Uh, one who speaks for God and one who can receive the message of God. Okay, so gifted to do that. But what is prophecy? I know the first time I heard this uh, or read it, I was, I think, like 12 years old. I had my Schofield reference Bible, and it said that, hey, prophecy is actually more often forthtelling than it is foretelling. And I really didn't exactly know what the difference was between forthtelling and foretelling. They both kind of sound like the same word, but um, here's the difference. And it is more, the majority of prophecy in the Bible is forthtelling. So what that means, in fact, it's like two-thirds compared to one-third. Forthtelling would be more like uh, a, a preacher than a fortune teller, okay? Forthtelling is someone who is speaking the word of God with fidelity to how they received it and with authority. So it's telling the truth and with authority, okay? Um, I don't remember what I wrote all there. Uh, oh, this is, I, I guess the way I was kind of thinking of it is if, if you were looking at a way to distinguish the two, forth telling is like seeing deep into uh, something so you know the truth of it um, in a deep way whereas foretelling would be seeing a distance out so deep depth versus distance maybe that's a good way to think about it so if we are talking about foretelling okay um, not necessarily predicting the future but relaying the truth of God's message with authority. Uh, you're probably going to see that there are what I think of as just two categories. Very easy to see these two categories, judgment and salvation. So those are the categories. And there's some formal elements to those categories um, that we could maybe talk about later if we have time. But <clears throat> that simple... Uh, delineation I think is helpful is just to remember as you're reading the writing prophets they're talking about judgment or salvation on the topic of salvation this is interesting I don't know about you you, you see the word salvation right um, I probably don't have time but I'd love to just open it up and we'd have a discussion about what you're <coughs> triggered to think of when you see the word salvation on my notes 
But in the Old Testament, we have to remember that the way the audience would have heard that or thought of that term is often more in relation to safety from enemies around them, okay? Very tangible salvation. Uh, and, and that is certainly clear in the prophets. As you read them, you'll see that that is the, the type of salvation that's being portrayed so often. Salvation isn't less, is, is, how would you say this? It's not less than that. It is more than that, but it's not less than that, okay? So uh, salvation, eternal salvation, heaven and hell, those kinds of things are true. That is salvation. But remember that uh, how the original audience might be hearing what we're reading. I've got some examples there. Isaiah and, Mike and Micah predict God's victory over Assyria. It's very tangible sal salvation, okay? But then you see uh, Micah promising a leader born in Bethlehem, okay? So our, our eyes see that and we, we can identify that with Jesus. That third bullet point under salvation examples, this is very interesting to me and maybe was one of the new things I, I understand in, understood in a new way as I studied this topic that, um, let's, oh, I have it, I have it printed there. Jeremiah 5, 18. But even in those days, declares the Lord, I will not make a full end of you. So judgment and salvation, my point is, can be overlaid. There can be elements of judgment and salvation at the same time, okay? Uh, we'll talk about that thematically a little bit later. I don't want you to lose the impact of this, but even in those days. Uh, I'm going to read... Jeremiah, a little bit from Jeremiah 5. Pretty quick. Jeremiah 5. Even in those days, well, that doesn't have a whole lot of impact. What days? Here's what days Jeremiah is talking about. Verse 14, therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, because you have spoken this word, behold, I am making my words in your mouth a fire, and this people would, and the fire shall consume them. So those days, those days. Even then I will not make a full end of you. So remember that superimposition of judgment and salvation as we read these two categories. I'll read this from... Walter Kaiser, this is a little bit older resource, preaching and teaching from the Old Testament. Uh, the, the appearance of these words, when you read, when you read, you see that superimposition. The appearance of these words of promise and blessing seems so out of place in the context of judgment messages. In fact, scholars have often decided the messages, message originally was either one of judgment or one of blessing. It couldn't have been both. But Kaiser just affirms, indeed, both were true parts of the tradition. I think we'll see that a little bit more as we uh, move forward. So foretelling, that is predicting the future. These are predictive prophecies. This is page three. Um, here's the big takeaway. Uh, again, you can read my notes, but the big takeaway for me was 
to say this with some confidence. And at first, I didn't have confidence to say this. So uh, the predictive prophecies of the prophetic books are conditional. And that felt like I was jeopardizing the authority of the word of God if I said that or something. But let me show you why I can say it. I think I have it later in my notes. So I was watching Jake this morning with his visual up, up front. And uh, he's, he draws bombs on the side of the thing. Did you guys see that? Very funny. Uh, I wrote boom in here, but I had written my notes before I saw his. So I wasn't copying him. Okay, I'm not going to find it right away. Anyway, we're going to revisit, revisit uh, this idea of conditional um, and a condition element. Okay, and you'll see it in my notes because it'll say boom. All right. So, um, but God sets the conditions, okay? And the conditions are these, in short, repentance and faith. Those are the conditions. So you will see uh, predictions of judgment. And then you will see, followed by that, uh, hope-filled uh, foretelling. And, and uh, we'll see how that's conditional as we move forward. So what is a false prophet? I think that definition is important. And um, I'm not going to turn to these passages, so the, but the, the, the uh, foundational passages are Deuteronomy 13 and Deuteronomy 18. You can read through them later. But the idea is two, two conditions, or two... Uh, uh, elements to the definition of a false prophet. One is, if anything they ever said didn't come true, it's a false prophet. So they could be right about 99% and they're right about one thing, false prophet. The other thing is, and I think this is even more important, if they contradict previous revelation, and this is where that man of God in 1 Kings 13 is important. If you want to turn there, you can, but I'll just, I'll just summarize the story. So there's a man of God from Judah, and he's told, he's told to go uh, prophesy uh, against the northern kingdom. And so he goes, and uh, he prophesies a, a prophecy of judgment. And, uh, but, but he also prays for the one who's judged. And... and uh, a king with a withered hand at an altar, and his hand is healed. So he, he follows through, but part of his message from God was that he wouldn't eat or drink on that journey, his long journey, and that he would return home in an alternate route. He wouldn't go back the same way he went. But he goes to Bethel, and there's a, there's a prophet, an old man prophet in Bethel, and he says, he, he hears about the man of God from Judah, and he wants to uh, invite him over to his house. I suppose he's probably looking for some sort of collateral blessing or something. So he invites him over, but he, he's lying ab about something. He says, uh, and I, an angel of the Lord told me that you should come dine with me. And so the, the idea here is that the man of God should have been able to identify this false prophet because he contradicted a previous revelation of God. So that's just fundamental to identifying false prophecy. So as you're reading, one element to remember is nothing, in no way that I understand the text can contradict something that, I, that, I've, that has been established previous in the Bible. Simple, okay? 
Um, but it can get confusing if you forget that principle. So the man leaves at the old, man, at the old uh, prophet's house, and uh, he has eat, ate and drank with him, and he's killed by a lion. So that was, that was the uh, consequence of listening to the false prophet. So on page four, I have a historical background that I'm not going to go through, but maybe it's a helpful tool for you uh, as you're reading, and especially as you cross-reference. If I'm skipping around, like it's pretty easy for me to keep my bearings in Hosea. If I've read the introduction to Hosea and thought about which king and those things, but if I'm referencing Hosea from another passage, I forget when was Hosea, you know, and so... Um, I keep something like this handy. I made this one fresh, but uh, and then I know that the one of the books for the class has a really handy chart in it that has something like like this in a chart form. Okay, but you can see from Hosea to Malachi for sure. There's like a timeline to when they lived and ministered. Um, but Joel, I'll mention Joel's prophecy. Uh, Joel's book doesn't mention a king, and so it's a little hard to identify when he wrote, when he prophesied. And so you'll see in commentaries and, and different uh, resources that Joel will be placed different places. But this is really important. Turn to page five in the notes. Any questions so far? So we're about halfway through the notes, about halfway through the night. Uh, Page five, though, I found really helpful. And that's because some of the terminology is the hardest part for me in the prophets. Uh, if it says Ephraim, like, I know that's a tribe, but I'm not exactly sure how to apply that to the text I'm in. And these are just some really helpful, very simple, actually, easy to remember things. So the divided kingdom, this is when the... Writing prophets ministered was during the divided kingdom. So it was after David and Solomon under the united uh, monarchy. And remember, Israel, quote unquote, is the northern kingdom. That's 10 tribes. Judah is the southern kingdom. That's two tribes, Judah and, and Benjamin. And they have capitals, so to speak. So Samaria in the north, Jerusalem in the south. Okay. But here's where I thought it was very helpful for me. Uh, one of the commentators I read pointed out that there are various emphases when different terminologies are used to identify the northern or southern kingdom. So you can see the first one, if it's kind of a simple national emphasis, like um, referring to who's ruling here and who's ruling here, uh, something going on nationally, that's simple Israel and Judah we've already identified. But there are times when it's more of a tribal emphasis, okay? And so there is where Ephraim will be used to refer to the northern kingdom. And I didn't really connect the dots on that until I read about this past few days. Uh, Judah would still be the tribal emphasis for the south. But then the next one, you could see that maybe they'll just refer to the city. But they're in, in, intending to mean north-south kingdoms. And then you might see just a reference to a landmark, the mountains. So Ephraim and Zion might be the difference there. I listed these other significant nations uh, 
and decided not to really explore their appearances in the writing prophets. So can you think of any other ones, though? I put dot, dot, dot at the end because I was like literally I just went from memory and just curious if there's any other ones that I wasn't thinking of. But here's your opportunity for a gotcha moment. So page six is really where I wanted to get to, and this is where, for me, it gets really interesting, and that is becoming a little bit more skilled at reading the prophets um, by addressing some of the particular difficulties. So that other stuff was background stuff. I need to know that stuff and keep it in mind. But this is maybe special problems with the prophets, okay? Um, I read from Acts and um, 1 Peter 1, just to set, set the stage, so is reading the prophets, I don't know, I kind of asked myself the question, is reading the prophets difficult or easy? <laughs> um, it seems like it's a little bit harder to me. It seemed like it was harder for that Ethiopian fella um, that we read at the beginning. He needed someone to explain it to him. Um, but I wanted to remember this too. First Peter 1 10 through 12 says this, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. So there's a sense in which I know, I know more about, I have available, I have available to me uh, better knowledge of the prophets' writings than the people who originally heard it, okay? So some of the difficulties they have, uh, um, that I have, they did not have. But I have the benefit of progressive revelation and looking back through um, that clearer revelation, particularly Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, that revelation in the incarnation of Christ. I'll just read that quick. So Hebrews 1... Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Huge benefit for me. And then, even more, uh, John 14 and John 16 talk about the promised Holy Spirit who will guide us into all truth. So I have great resources at my disposal. Uh, why read the prophets? It's a huge part of the Bible. <laughs> So it's, it's like a fifth of the Bible. And if you would include all prophecy, period, then it's like a fourth of the Bible. So huge part of the Bible is prophecy. Um, that's one reason to read it. In particular, the New Testament, Isaiah is quoted second most out of any other book. Psalms is the most. Isaiah is second most. I looked at one of those digitally engineered things for the uh, Treasury of Scripture Knowledge online. Check this out. It's really cool. It's a visual representation of cross-references, and so they have these lines, and, and it just kind of explodes out of Isaiah into the New Testament. It's, it's kind of a neat visualization. So reading the prophets, we're still trying to think of what special challenges there are. Um, we already looked at this either or category of judgment or salvation from that we looked at earlier. Generally, that's something we have to remember, or we could have a more challenging time of it than not. 
But there are other literary, literary genres to think about. So there's um, things like this that you'll see, and it'll be helpful just to think that this is this category that I'm familiar with. So there's woe oracles, which is fun to say, not so fun to hear. Uh, words of dismay, like woe or alas or behold, literally begin these oracles. So you'll, you'll see that at the beginning. Easy one to identify. Next page. This is a great one. Just a really rich picture God uses to communicate uh, to his people. Prophetic lawsuit and um, Micah 6. So I just read this earlier. Turn to, if you want to, turn to Micah 6. And I'll read a couple verses to get you an idea what this is. So prophetic lawsuit. My ESV says, the indictment of the Lord. Very legal. Hear what the Lord says. Plead your case before the mountains and let the, hear, the hills hear your voice. Here's the jury. It's the land. Hear you mountains, the indictment of the Lord and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people. Later, he says, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. So acquit yourself in court, okay? That's one literary genre that you'll see. I gave a couple examples there. And the last one, huge part of the prophetic books is actually messages meant to be uh, preached to foreign nations, okay? You can see, um, I, I, I call this a literary genre. Maybe it's really more about content but, um, than form because you'll see different forms in, in this category. But uh, there's some examples. Notably, Obadiah and Nahum uh, are totally, from cover to cover, so to speak, oracles against a foreign nation. So let's interact with this next thing just a little bit as a, as a group. Um, another special challenge, I think maybe the most difficult thing for me to do in reading the prophets is to know whether I'm understanding this as a relatively soon fulfillment, an immediate near fulfillment, or if it's a far distant future fulfillment that I'm supposed to have in mind. Okay, so before you read my quote there, um, Turn to Isaiah 7. So I picked this one. Kind of cheated. It came to mind easy because in seminary, this is the one they told us to look at. And um, you'll see why. So Isaiah 7. And it starts in verse 10, the, at least what I'm thinking of. And I'm particularly... Thinking about verse 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. The problem is if I read that today and um, familiar with the uh, Christmas pageants that I've seen, uh, that I'm really only going to think about Jesus. Uh, it's not that this doesn't refer to Jesus. 
but maybe I need to realize it also refers to verse 16. So there's a context here, uh, the Lord speaking to Ahaz, uh, ask a sign of the Lord. And so this is a, a, a person in time. This has a historical context. And verse 16 says, in that context, for before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, I don't know what the age of accountability is, is it 8 or 13 or something like that. So within of just a few years, maybe it's longer than that, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. And there's a, like we were talking about salvation references uh, in the Old Testament, it's a very tangible thing. The land whose two kings uh, you dread will be deserted. So I have to remember that there's this tension, and that's what this quote says uh, from Gordon Fee. As you read, you will want to be aware of the frequent tension that exists in the prophets between the near future and the ultimate future, since the final consummation of the biblical story often serves as the backdrop for what is said about the near future. And he gives an example there. So does that make sense? Somebody asked me a question about this one, or I don't know. So are you saying that it always has mm-hmm. a immediate near fulfillment and a future distant fulfillment? Like it always has both of those? So I'm nodding because it's a good question. <laughs> but I should be doing this because I don't think that it is always. Okay. So... But it's so often. And I don't have any statistics or... Uh, and I'm not even familiar enough with the 17 books to say kind of my impression. Uh, but, but I would just say... I would make the assertion that it's not always. So, But it's certainly something to be, be uh, sensitive to or be aware of. So you, you need to look for that possibility. And not to read it in two dimensions with either or in mind. And that was a great question. So the other, the other thing, um, and I think I mentioned a little bit earlier, is that unconditional versus conditional nature of uh, prophecy. So let's, let's just think about the writing prophets and compare them, for instance, with uh, certain covenants. So that's what I list there. Here are unconditional, this is unconditional revelation, okay? Abrahamic covenant. Davidic covenant. These things, God, uh, we've, we've heard it preached and taught here. I think we talked about it in the historical books or the Pentateuch in this very room just recently that um, there's an unconditional nature to the Abrahamic covenant. And uh, God walks between the sacrifices himself while Abraham sleeps, okay? So that's what that looks like. But there's a conditional nature in this respect to the writing prophets. And I'll just read practically all other words of judgment. Even though you'll read it as certain doom, okay? Nevertheless, have an implicit, at least, contingency clause. And this is the thing I said earlier, if you remember. Uh, I was like, I don't know if I buy that. Because it seems like I'm waffling on the authority or, or uh, permanence of God's word. But let's read Jeremiah 18 that I couldn't find earlier. So Jeremiah 18, 
this is, this is so good. It helps me use the Bible to interpret the Bible. 18.7 through 10 says, If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster. And look how it turns it around the other way. Verse 9. And if at uh, any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it, and if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I had intended to do to it. So that's the conditional nature I'm talking about. It's the one that Jeremiah reveals. And as we read uh, other of these writing prophets, we have to remember that principle that I can't contradict what was already revealed. Okay? Oh, and that's where I said boom. See that, Jake? Yeah. <laughs> I didn't draw, I don't know how to draw a bomb in word, but okay. So, uh, we're still talking about reading the prophets and uh, just some special things to be aware of, maybe even call them challenges. Here's what uh, Paul House, who contributed to that secondary text for our class, understanding the big picture of the Bible, he points out that pronouns are a special problem. And here's his quote, and it's a really good one. As prepositions are to the letters of Paul. Have you read Romans and struggled a little bit as the sentence goes on and on? And you wonder, I don't know what this preposition should be referring to sometimes or how it fits um, as they are in the letters of Paul. So pronouns are in the oracles of the prophets. Crucial for meaning, but awful, often puzzling. He lists these categories. And I'll be honest, I didn't puzzle these out with uh, over very much time. So I didn't spend a whole lot of time. I looked at them once and... Uh, and so there they are for your, for your um, examination. It's in that secondary text for the class. So if you want to check that out, we can get it available to you. Um, I will just say this, that sometimes you'll see that the, uh, I think I'm saying this right grammatically, that the person changes. So like God can be speaking and he can speak about himself in the first person, but then in the third person, okay? And so uh, you have to be aware that sometimes, and then that pronoun won't have some kind of antecedent that you'll be able to say contextually, oh, I know what that pronoun's pointing to, all right? So it's a special challenge, and uh, uh, Paul House does a great job of giving some examples and puzzling them out for us. Questions about that? We read a song, or, or uh, I think Jake preached on a psalm, which was the last one we did a while back. Um, and it had a pronoun in it. I was like, well, who is that? You know? Uh, yeah. So anyway. All right. So we're past kind of these special uh, challenges, at least that seem to be important to me. Uh, and we're on to themes. We've got 15 minutes left. And I, I don't know if I really plan to go through all these themes. Um, I know Jake encouraged me for sure with the day of the Lord to like engage with that one a little bit. So I want to go to that one. 
So um, first of all, the first two, um, I would say, are not so much textual themes. So I called these themes providence and proclamation, which maybe we'll talk about here, but um, they're more conceptual themes, okay? Like you see them in the, in the concept of what's going on in the writing prophets, but it's not like there's a textual reference to it like there is with the day of the Lord. So the day of the Lord is a clear textual reference. You'll hear or you'll read the day or that day or the day of the Lord or the day of the wrath of the Lord or the day of the anger of the Lord or different things like that. But what do you think about when you hear the day of the Lord? I'm just curious. Quick answer. Judgment, Judgment yeah? Like I literally picture a guy on the side of the street with the sign, you know, like the end is near kind of thing. You know, that's the day of the Lord, right? Um, this was interesting to me to uh, listen to the Bible Project guys a little bit, and they they just wanted to recognize that the day of the Lord isn't all bad, so it's good. In particular, they reference the Exodus, uh, the, in particular the Passover of the Exodus, as the day of the Lord. This is when uh, judgment was was carried out, okay, on Egypt and on anybody who didn't, through faith, put the blood over their door, okay? This is a wonderful day. It was the day for Israel. This is the day they celebrate. They celebrate other days, but this is the day, you know? And, and uh, but it was not a good day <laughs> for a lot of people. So, but it can be good, okay? Um, there's other uh, references to that day being good. Um, you see Isaiah there, a return to paradise. Um, that's a theme that I deleted from my notes, which is creation and recreation that you'll see in, in the writing prophets. But uh, a return to paradise, uh, a situation here in Joel where he's, he's very agricultural in his in his. Uh, Prophecy, and he talks about mountains dripping with wine and hills flowing with milk and honey and an abundant harvest. So, and those are the day of the Lord. Uh, and then you have this one, which we want to read, Obadiah 1.15. How are we thinking about the day of the Lord is the question. so small, you end up in a different book if you're not careful. Okay, 115. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. Do you recall Jesus teaching this? In particular, I've, I've heard it taught from the Lord's Prayer. It's just really important aspect of the Lord's Prayer. Uh, Lord, forgive us in the same way that we forgive others. That's kind of self-condemning prayer if you're uh, not forgiving others. So um, that's, that's the sense of this. And so the day of the Lord can be good. 
or is good. In certain cases, it could be good, uh, depending. And then you have the bad. And here's what is important about the bad of the day of the Lord is in Amos 5.18 is probably the pivotal, literally, passage. Amos 5.18. The day of the Lord which Passover and on Israel thought of as a great thing, they realized could maybe not be so good. So Amos 5.18 says, uh, Woe to you. There's one of our woe oracles. Who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. So this is for the unrepentant that are on the wrong end of judgment. And uh, these are the kinds of categories, complexities uh, that we need to be thinking about as we consider the day of the Lord. This is good from Isaiah. Um, Regardless of whether it's good or bad individually or for a nation, here's the outcome of the day of the Lord, Isaiah 2.17 on page 10. The pride of mankind will be brought low and human loftiness will be humbled. The Lord alone will be exalted on that day. So that's how I'm learning to think about the day of the Lord. You can see that I interact a little bit in the notes with Jesus and how um, judgment became kind of a new uh, part of redemption or seen in a new way. Here's the two big reversals that I will read. So I'm, I'm thinking through that history of redemption and with the theme of the day of the Lord. So that's how I think of these themes. Did I say this already? Like you're, in, you're looking at the writing prophets and there's just verse after verse of rich detail, tree after tree after tree, and you miss the forest. So the themes help me to get a little bit overview uh, picture of what, where I'm at. Okay, I can get lost in the trees. So um, here's, the, here's the two big reversals on this theme. The first was what we read in Amos, uh, that the day of the Lord um, from Passover on got switched on the people of God who, as we said, conditionally were uh, not being God's people. And then this other huge reversal, uh, first advent of Jesus. At the cross, God's wrath is poured out on his son. Huge reversal, right? It was foretold, and it's easy to look, easier to look back and see it, but... Um, that's when it became wonderfully clear. Covenant, uh, this theme, I think this is great. I sent an email to Mark and, and uh, Jake. I'm like, I'm not going to cover covenant because you guys have talked about it so much. And then I'm like, the writing prophets introduced the new covenant. <laughs> and I thought, what would Mark have said to me if I didn't talk about the new covenant? So... Um, I think I just want to tap out because I, I, being a leaky dispensationalist, am applying the new covenant to the church is especially complicated. So, <laughs> but I don't think that comes up in my notes. So, uh, we I will ask this. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wait now, right? Uh, 
So as I'm thinking about this theme of covenant, um, I know I have to think through like uh, progressive revelation and, and is, am I, is there one covenant between God and man and his people? I mean, um, there is a way that, that this, these covenants unfold. The Adamic, uh, which arguably, whether it's a covenant or not, is certainly covenant-like. There are so many similarities to the actual explicit covenants uh, later on. Uh, but I list them there. So you can, you can look at these. It's just kind of a reference. These are the, re- the relevant references on these different covenants. And um, it's just important to, to see the unfolding of God's plan of redemption through the covenants. But here's the, here's the one interesting thing that I guess I would uh, bring to the class tonight. This was kind of interesting to me is to be thinking about that unfolding plan and uh, to do a little bit of reading and realize that before like the 1980s, not too long ago, really Jeremiah 31 that we read this morning, that's the new covenant. It's, it's kind of like one-stop shop, new covenant terminology. And since then, this has been a scholarly work uh, to really surface other texts that relate to the new covenant. So there are elements in these other texts that put up a big question mark. Is this revealing part of the new covenant? I think just, I think my big takeaway, you can see it towards the bottom. Jeremiah introduces the new covenant, yes. Uh, He uses that term, distinguishes it from the old. But the other writing prophets support that statement in Jeremiah 31 with at least suggestive elements of the same theme. And in particular, the passages there in the middle of the page, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Joel, Zechariah. Okay? But let's not ignore the Pentateuch. So Deuteronomy 30. I don't know how I read past this. And I don't know, some kind of giant flashing sign didn't appear. But um, is there one covenant or many? Well, there's one God, and it doesn't really change his mind. So his plan of redemption has themes that that, uh, you can trace. And here's Deuteronomy 30, 1 through 6. If everybody was here this morning and they read along with me, Jeremiah 31, 31, Here's Deuteronomy 30, 1 through 6. And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind, among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you, and he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. They haven't even been scattered yet. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you. And from there he will take you, and the Lord your God will bring you into the land your fathers possessed, uh, that you may possess it. And he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and, with, and that you may live. So... 
just a really foretaste of what we see in Jeremiah. Questions? Good. Um, could you maybe speak a little bit to the, the prophets? Do they tend to speak particularly to exclusively the northern or exclusively the southern, or, they tend, or do they tend to intermingle them? Um, yeah. Maybe you can give like a two-minute summary of this split of mm-hmm. Israel into the northern and southern. Yeah. That's probably one of those questions you know the answer to, but you thought it'd be helpful for the class. Uh, You'd be much more articulate. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm just going to dumb it down, way down. So when the northern kingdom went into exile or, or kind of disappeared, that was when the emphasis in these writing prophets uh, started to go by default. But, I mean, you don't see a whole lot of prophecy to Judah until... Israel's out of the picture. The northern kingdom's out of the picture. So that's just, and I'm, I was going to look at this. I've got these things on my head all night. I'm finally going to use them. Uh, I had to shrink the font there for this page four. I thought maybe I said on here where, like the year, it's six. Oh, heavens, I don't know. Well, you can see the sixth century that. Uh, oh, that's Judah. Anyway, I'm not doing a good job of pointing. And this is my weakest area is remembering the dates and the years. But I, I do know that that is, and it was through preparing for tonight that I really saw that that shift happened. It's just simply when the northern kingdom was uh, was finally conquered completely, then that's when... Almost all, uh, almost all of it before that was to the northern kingdom and foreign nations. And then it was shifted to the southern. Okay, I have, I thought there was one other theme that I thought was so good. I might have two minutes to touch on it. These conceptual elements, I think, are just important to see. I don't are conceptual themes. I don't know if you call it a theme, because, like I said, it's not textual. But um, providence, God uses even the pagan nations. This is page nine to accomplish His will. And so, I've heard plenty of people infer things from the Bible because of the of the narrative. And I think it's similar here. They infer something from prophecy. Like, if, well, if the Babylonians are used to uh, judge, Israel, judge uh, Judah, then are, are the Babylonians okay then? Are they innocent? You know, like, why would God use? But that's the nature of God's providence is he uses even. And, and I thought of Genesis that set in that um, 
principle very clearly. Joseph's brothers selling him into slavery and what you meant for evil, God intended for good. So, And proclamation that hits close to home, um, I don't see a, lot of, a whole lot of soul winning in my life. And, and sometimes I become a little bit uh, weary of wanting to share the gospel when I don't, when I start to wonder, is anybody ever going to listen? You know, but I think the prophets really demonstrate that the, uh, that faithfulness and not fruitfulness is kind of the more fundamental thing. Um, that, that there are times when there's fruitfulness, but that the point is just like those prophets is to be faithful to the word of God and to speak it with authority. Okay. Because it's true. And, and you'll see that, I think, as a theme. Um, it's just a, the nature of these prophets' ministries. You see it for sure in Isaiah 6. Uh, I'll do a bad job of quoting it, but it's like hearing they won't hear. You know, he, he's, he's sending him to, to uh, proclaim this message, and, and nobody's going to listen to you. But that's your ministry. So not to be... Um, I'm praying for souls to be one. That's what I'm praying for. But I know that my job is to be faithful, and it's God's uh, work to produce fruit. Marriage is all through it. This is really good too. Um, I've heard I've heard it applied from Jeremiah that uh, to justify the practice of divorce. Like, well, God divorced Israel. Um, if you look at Jeremiah 3, though, and that's the text that was cited, and you keep reading, like literally six verses later, yeah, but I didn't divorce you. I, I, here's the certificate of divorce, and then I didn't go through with it. So, um, but marriage is just ubiquitous. To the, I like that word. It's everywhere to the writing prophets. Uh, it's a very common, maybe the most common symbol of God and his people, the marriage So in closing, I will um, um, any, any last questions? We had two, two or three super questions tonight. All right, in closing, you can read that last page. Um, but the thing I just want to see in uh, the same thing we read at the beginning in Acts uh, where we start from that and we, we get to Jesus, we get to the gospel. I just personally, having spent this time in the writing prophets, I, these are gospel-centered books, you know. I mean, it's so clear. Judgment, bad news, repent blessing, good news. I mean, and, and a God who will, who will respond, who runs after you and will respond to repentance and faith with overwhelming blessing, uh, forgetting your sins. I mean, it is, it is gospel-centered stuff. And um, I always thought it was so hard to read, but it's getting easier. So, um, so much more devotional to read this and to be able to respond to God's word with, with joy and uh, praise 
and not just questions. So, should we close in prayer? Let's do that. God, uh, thank you so much for uh, the fellowship we have here. I pray that everybody here can can understand from their own life the truth of your holy wrath uh, being what is what would be leveled against us in our sinfulness if it weren't for Jesus and to know that you're a gracious God who will forget our sins and forgive us and uh, just ask that we would be people who continue to grow in that knowledge as we evangelize the lost, as we uh, confess our sins to one another and just even in that celebrate your grace. Pray that that would be true. Pray for each one here that uh, this word would produce fruit in their lives. In Christ's name, amen.